Welcome to Puro Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by Kerry Clack, columnist, editorial board member, Metro editor Greg Jefferson, Brian Chasnoff, investigative reporter. I'm Nancy Prayer Johnson. I'm the associate editorial board editor and columnist. Nancy, thank you so much for joining our podcast team. We're really excited to have you here. I wanted to start off talking about uh, the story that we've all been focusing on so much for the past three weeks or so. Um, uh, the the Valdi shooting at Robb Elementary, which uh, took the lives of 19 uh, school children and t- two teachers. And last week, for the first time, um, the school district police chief, Pete Adelondo, gave an interview. He talked to Texas Tribune about what happened. And he the, the story that we've been hearing from DPS was that he was the incident commander. He was uh, he and other officers were in the building, but were reluctant to breach the, the, the classrooms. The story that he told was was somewhat different. He was talking about the fact that they couldn't find the key that worked. The door was too secure. To, to there was no way of, of breaking in, and they they kept trying to find the right key and they couldn't. Um, Brian, I mean, I, I find myself now kind of like more unclear uh, about what actually happened than ever before. I mean, what, yeah. what are you? What's your takeaway? Well, I think the the most shocking parts of that interview that he gave to the Texas Tribune were that he claims he didn't realize he was the incident commander. Yeah. Um, and if you, if, if you can recall director, uh, Stephen McCraw, uh, DPS director, Stephen McCraw's press conference from a couple of weeks ago, uh, he, f- he firmly cast, um, Arredondo as the incident commander on the scene. So that, that's, I mean, at this stage, that's, that's a discrepancy, right? Yeah. Um, and then, you know, he, he did say that he set down his radios before he entered the building. And I think his lawyer said, well, that's so he could hold the, his weapon with both hands. You know, obviously an attempt to, to cast him as, as more of a hero than, than uh, 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 someone who was incompetent enough to, to not bring his radios into the, into the, the school. Yeah. And it was, it was, he describes it as this was a conscious decision. Uh, it wasn't like he forgot to bring them in. Um, and I'm no expert on, on this stuff. Uh, it, but I mean, that was a big I red mean, flag for me as I, as yeah, I, that. I, mean, I mean, there when, were 19 law enforcement officers, uh, in the hallway at, at some point. I'm, I'm going to guess that most of them had their radios with them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, they, they did not make the same decision, uh, to leave their radios in the car so they'd have free Well, does that, that, and maybe this, this question has been answered at some point, but I mean, then would they have, because one of the things we've heard about is that there were these 911 calls from te- students and, and teachers and, and saying, please send in help. And the, the thought that we had was that he didn't know, uh, he wasn't aware of this. If others had radios, would they have been relaying this information to him? I mean, what? Yeah, none of that is clear. Yeah. Uh, it, it stands to reason. I mean, if, if you're surrounded by other officers who do have radios and they're getting communications, uh, if you're not hearing them at minimum, somebody might be telling you, but we don't know. Uh, that's, you know, that's still an unanswered question. Right. And, and, and again, quite some time elapsed there in the hallway. I mean, uh, up to an hour, right. If not more. Um, and, and so, so are we supposed to believe that, uh, our, our was sitting there, you know, without, without, uh, receiving communications while, while giving orders at the same time. I mean, right. And another, you know, another major, you know, and I, I think it's a pretty big question. So, you know, they had to call for keys and he's like, he talked about having 10 pounds of keys worth of, you know, uh, to deal with, to find the right one. 
So they had no other means of breaching the door. I mean, surely they did. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah. it, it's entirely possible that they didn't. It just it doesn't seem it doesn't seem likely. Uh, but again, there's a lot we don't know. We don't know what assets they had, uh, and it could be that really that was that was the best solution. It just seems it seems unlikely. You know, having been a school teacher until about 15 months ago, 16 months ago now, um, I know that the doors are made to keep the students and the teachers inside safely. Um, so when I, I hear about that and I, I heard the interview, I read the interview um, of Adodondo, I just keep thinking about how everything went wrong and how the, they were, you know, barricaded in there with the shooter and um, just every possible thing went wrong. Now, when I read the interview, I came away with, I don't think it's necessarily cowardice on the part of the police chief. Um, now, I do believe he was incompetent. I do believe just like everybody who I spoke to and Uvalde, I even talked to teenage boys, a lot of teenage boys. I kept talking to them, you know, 18, 19 year olds. And um, they would just say that they couldn't believe that this happened in Uvalde. And that, you know, their small town, um, that they just would never have believed that this would happen there. And I think that that's what happened with the police department, um, with the school police department and the Uvalde police department. Just They were, even though they had had the training, they were not mentally prepared for this. They panicked and they made some very bad decisions. Now, we don't know if that would have saved lives, if they would have gone in there any sooner. I know that on my social media, someone said, well, you know, I smell a cover-up. And we can say that, right? But after the interview, I come away with, I don't I don't necessarily see a cover-up here. I see incompetence. I don't see anything there that um, Chief Autodono should be, you know, proud of, right? It was a very difficult situation. They could not get in that door the doors are made to keep people inside safely. Obviously, they were not safe in that in those classrooms. Um, you know, my dad was a janitor at the high school. You know, at the school my whole time I grew mm -hmm. up. Right, I remember those keys. You know, he had this huge, huge amount of keys and. Believe it or not, sometimes he'd lose them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then we'd be looking all over the house over the weekend for the keys, this huge amount of keys. And um, and so when I, I read that in the interview, I picture my dad's keys from the school. Mm -hmm. And I just picture going through all of those keys, you know, and I, I can picture, I can imagine the panic of the chief and how, yes, he should have been in charge. You can he feel should, that yeah. panic as yes. you read it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And it would have been nice to have a master key. Yes. Yeah. 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 I had a master key. Yeah. yeah. And that's another, I mean, again, there, there are dozens of unanswered questions yes. in this, you know, more than hour long episode. And that's one of them. Like, wh why couldn't they just. Why not a master key? key? I, I think yeah. to Brian's point uh, about the chief and his lawyer trying to almost cast himself as heroic. Um, the, the thing that sticks in my mind with that interview where he, he talks about, or his lawyer talks about, almost bragging about getting 500 kids out. Okay, that's great. We're glad that's 500 kids who yeah. weren't killed, but that's 500 kids who obviously weren't in the line of fire, yeah. immediate danger. And to kind of be boasting about getting those 500 it's, kids It's almost out. like the Greg Abbott line of it, it could have been worse, you know. Exactly. It, it's very yeah. similar, and it's just not, I don't think that's a message you want yeah. to be putting out to people. One of the things I was, I was, that was uh, striking about last week, um, 
we had a, a speech delivered from the White House briefing room by Matthew McConaughey, the actor who is a Uvalde native. And um, I probably on the podcast and maybe maybe in, in the, the paper, I've, you know, I've been kind of critical of, of him, what I, what I thought was kind of a, a gimmicky sort of flirtation with running for governor. Um, but I have to say, I was not prepared for what he delivered there and the fact that he had really, he and his wife had really taken time and met with people. And I think the, one of the things that really stood out was the story of, I think it's Maite Rodriguez with her green Converse sneakers with the, the hand-drawn, um, heart over the right toe. And, uh, Carrie, you know, what was your, I know, cause I, I saw, I saw some social media posts that you had about that, that day. And, uh, what were your, your impressions of, of him? It, I mean, it was just so, raw, so so just visceral. I mean, even when he did, you know, he kind of pounded the podium. And it wasn't like, it wasn't a, the best speech. I mean, it was, but it was just, he was so sincere. And it was, it was the emotion. He was speaking the way we all felt. And that pounding on the podium was how we all, all feel. And, and, and predictably, he was, he was, he was attacked by folks on the right. And that, that's one of the, that's one of the things we, we don't talk enough about whenever we have one of these mass shootings because we know we all know how predictable it is and everyone's response, but how quickly folks who don't want anything done to alleviate this problem, how quickly they get angry with the rest of us <laughs> for yeah. being yeah. hurt and for being outraged that there's been another mass shooting. They get mad at us. So, you know, you used to see folks getting mad at Matthew McConaughey because he was hurting about a mass shooting in his hometown. Well, well, I think he was accused of insincerity by folks on the right, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the green converse being part of it. They said, how can those green converse have been the ones that might the rope um, that she was wearing during the shooting? And they claim that those those green converse were not legit, right? Oh, um, so yeah, so you're yeah. saying conspiratorial, right? Type of stuff, yeah, right. There was a lot of that going around, but she obviously there were pictures of her wearing green converse. The question is, was it those green converse? Personally, I don't. I don't think it's those green converse. They were very clean. They look brand new. Um, and there were pictures that they were posting where she wore some that were had more wear on them, right? They were older green converse and a lime green. They were, you know, a different shade. But who cares, right? I mean, she still wore them. We're talking about a child who loved the environment, who her parents didn't even want to release balloons in the air at her funeral, um, which good, good on them, right? Because um, we know that's not good for the environment. Um, and I think that, you know, so much of it, you know, when I watched Matthew McConaughey, I was thinking, imagine, and I know this is a dreamlike um, scenario, but imagine if we had a governor who cared so much about these victims and their families in this community that he would make a speech, something like that, right? Imagine if he would have sat face-to-face with these families and gotten these stories himself. And yeah, he was he's no celebrity. He's not on these blockbuster films. But imagine if he would have given a very different kind of speech. Now, I was there at that first. I know a lot of us were. I think you were too, right? Um, oh, for the very first. For- the very first press conference? Yes. Yes. Um, and so, so many of us were there. Um, but I just remember our governor getting up there with everybody else and it just looking like, to me, it looked like when they passed the gun legislation, right? When, you know, open carry. 
And it just, and I was just, you know, I was hoping, I was hopeful at that first press conference, actually. I try to be an optimist as much as I can. And I was hoping, you know, this is a tragedy like we have not seen in that community anyway. There's obviously other school shootings. Um, but I was hopeful that the governor and that um, the other members of the GOP that were standing up there were going to have something different to say. And we didn't hear it. Yeah. One development that we had uh, over the weekend is there appears to be uh, some kind of breakthrough uh, when it comes to developing a, a bipartisan uh, framework. This is a bipartisan group in the U.S. Senate that includes John Cornyn from Texas for some kind of um, gun reform. It's not I mean, we're, what we're looking at right now is funding for states to create red red flag laws, uh, funding for mental health services. They're closing what's known as the, the boyfriend loophole, which has meant that, which would mean that if you're uh, in a relationship with someone and you've been convicted of, uh, uh, I guess, domestic violence, that you would that you would not be eligible to own a gun, regardless of whether you're, you're married or not. Uh, there would be stronger background checks for those under 21. Um, there are a lot of things that aren't in this. Um, no universal background checks, which is an extremely popular, almost un universally uh, supported uh, provision. It's not in this. Uh, no assault weapons ban. Uh, no lifting the age of purchasing firearms. A lot of people have said, you know, if you if you have to be 21 to 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 drink in I think in most states, uh, is would it be unreasonable to raise raise the age of um, purchasing a firearm to from 18 to 21? Um, and uh, you know, so no 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 restrictions on high capacity magazines or anything along those lines. Um, so I guess my first question is, you know, what do you, what do you all think? I mean, we there's been a lot of talk in the past about, you know, if we if there's some movement that just breaking that logjam, that partisan logjam, could be important. This is clearly very modest, but what do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, my concern is that this isn't the start of some kind of break in the logjam. That this is simply. This is it. Like this, I'm afraid that this is this is the common ground, and anything beyond this is going to be nearly impossible to get. So this is, I'm afraid, you know, months from now we'll look back on it and say, well, okay, well, we knew what we were going to get <laughs> back it, in June. If that's true, though, then should Democrats take what they can get, or should they? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I don't see. Uh, to me, it would be foolish to say, okay, well, this is this is the most we can get now. We want more, so let's just ditch this. That makes zero sense. Uh, but, you know, the fight to get more, to get a ban on assault <laughs> assault rifles, universal, uh, you know, background checks, that it is a tough fight. I mean, I hope they put it up. I hope they make the fight. But I just don't see it. I think in, in, in moral terms, if you feel like this is moving the ball forward, even, you know, just a little bit, I think you have to go, you have to, you have to accept that and try to build on that. I mean, one concern that I have whenever this, this comes up is that if one side accepts reforms that they, that they feel are really inadequate and then five years later or however many years later, people say, well, that, that didn't really do any good. And you're, you're thinking it might be, well, that maybe it, we, we could, if we had done all the things that we wanted to do, maybe we would see some, some real statistical evidence. And so that it can almost be used to say, see, uh, to tell for Republicans to tell themselves it was a mistake to even do anything because this hasn't achieved anything. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't, again, I don't think that's, 
ultimately, I think you have to do, if something is going to make things incrementally better, you got to, you got to take that, I think, but that's a concern that I have. I mean, I don't know. If, if you've been in the desert for so long and you're parched, you don't reject a Dixie cup of water because you can't <laughs> get a <laughs> that's, that's what I was trying that, to say. You take that Dixie yeah. cup of water and, yeah. and enjoy it. Uh, I, 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 I do think you, you have to, it's, it's not something to celebrate or something to, there's some encouragement, encouragement, but I'm kind of with Greg and that I, I don't know if this is necessarily the start of something and maybe the end, but I saw, uh, Fred Gutenberg yesterday on TV and his daughter Jamie was killed in Parkland. And he made the comment that, that if this bill had been in place, maybe his daughter would still be alive. So that was enough for me. If he felt that his daughter may have still been alive because this had been in place in 2018, but you have to take yeah. what you can and, get. And can you imagine complete inaction after f following this sort yeah. of an atrocity? I mean. But that's it, what happened after Santa Fe. Yeah. There was inaction after Santa Fe. And I think people just looked at that like, well, it's not going to happen in Texas again. But hello, there had been other mass shootings as well. Oh, the Walmart and I mean, yeah, yeah, Walmart. I mean, to me, it was remarkable. And this, I can't remember which story this was a part of. But there was a line in one of, in an Express News story last week that said this was the largest school shooting in Texas. That's horrifying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean that we're now you know, and the just second highest, yeah. second yeah. highest yeah. in America. Yeah, that you yeah, have exactly. to really break it yeah. down like that. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's like, oh my God. And, and and really, you know, going back to like the, the Sandy Hook thing because that, that I think the feeling at the time was similar to now, which is if we can't if we can't make some progress now, if we can, people can't sit down and try to work something out, like when is it ever going to happen? And I think. The strongest argument that, that in my lifetime that's been made against the Senate filibuster was Sandy Hook when you had 55 votes. It wasn't just a, a thin major, a majority of 55 votes in favor of universal background checks, widely supported in the country. And just because of the filibuster, you were stuck there. So, um, so I mean, this is encouraging in, so, in, in a way, and uh, we'll hope that some, something this can be something that's built on. I mean, to me on this, on this, um, there's a quote from Cornyn in one of the um, one of the articles that I read over the weekend. It is uh, Senator Cornyn said, what is the test of that legislation? It is to me not whether it meets your ideological standard, but it's simply this. Will it save lives? If it will, it is worth all of our best efforts. My question is, is it going to save enough lives? And I think if you were to ask the Uvalde families you know, the 10-year-old child up there testifying about rubbing the, you know, putting the blood of another child all over her, um, that this wouldn't be enough. And if you look at the circumstances, I mean, Corna did tweet about, um, you know, that he was a ticking time bomb, that Salvador was a ticking time bomb if you would have looked at his past. I don't know. I mean, maybe he knows something in his history because I know that there have been a lot of allegations and stuff, but I don't know if it rose to the level of becoming, you know, part of law enforcement or if there was any kind of anything, right? We don't know that. Um, but he seemed to know more than we do, um, and he certainly implied it, but I still don't know if, if it would have kept – you know, kept it from happening. And I think that's what, what everybody needs to keep in mind, you know, would it have kept a Salvador Ramos from going into that school and killing 21 people? That's a big question. And I, I mm -hmm. don't think any of us know the answer, but it, that, that's really what the key is. Um, wanted to, to uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about uh, what was the first in a series of public hearings from the January 6th uh, committee, uh, congressional committee that is, it's looking at 
the insurrection that happened at the nation's capital on January 6, 2021, uh, which uh, produced by uh, supporters of Donald Trump who re refused to believe that he had lost the 2020 election. I was, uh, it, it felt to me kind of a, a, a Cliff Notes version of what we're going to see because we're now starting to see these, uh, it was in prime time, now we're seeing these kind of daytime, longer uh, hearings. We got little, little snippets of testimony. We got, um, uh, I think we got kind of, they kind of laid out the basic case and uh, as with the McConaughey situation, I was surprised by how much I was affected. We saw some 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 footage that we hadn't seen before from an embedded uh, filmmaker um, with the who was someone who was embedded with the Proud Boys, and um, seeing it all again and hearing some of the testimony, it really kind of kind of shook me. And uh, Carrie, what, what did you make? Of that? You know, I've I've suspected for a while that that the January sixth committee was going to deliver on, you know, when Jamie Raskin said a few weeks ago that it was going to, I forgot the phrase he used, but something like it's going to you know, knock your socks off or whatever. <laughs> but I think they've been, they have been masterful in the way they have just released stuff over, over the months, just given a taste of this, a taste of that. And uh, then holding the, holding the first hearing on, on, a, on, on prime time on a Friday night and getting 20 million people to watch. And without Fox News, Fox, Fox News showing it. Yeah, Fox News. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I think I think there are things. I don't think we can imagine yet some of the revelations that we are going to see and and hear. I don't know if it's going to have any effect when it comes to to elections, but I, I think they are going to continue to deliver on leaving no doubt about what happened not on January 6th, but preceding January 6th, and who specifically is responsible? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that you're right, Gilbert. It was actually surprisingly emotionally um, impactful. Um, I, I won't say who, but there was one member of my household who was in tears. Wow, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I don't, don't want to call them out, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we're narrowing it down <laughs> yeah. as you speak. Yeah. Yeah. That's a beard. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 I'm not saying it was me. <laughs> um, but no, it, it was, a uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was, uh, shocking, um, yeah. shocking. The, the thing that, that, that I, came away with was because there's a lot of focus uh, from the defenders of the people who were there, uh, you know, saying uh, and defenders of Trump saying um, you can't, you know, he made a speech that day and he said, yeah, we're all going to the Capitol, but he didn't tell people to go and and break in and to, to smash windows and everything. And so there's a lot of a lot of attention on that. And I think that, you know, this is something that's worth certainly worth uh, investigating. But to me, fundamentally as horrible as what happened on January 6th was. And we got more graphic uh, examples of that uh, last week. I think even before that, what, if you look, that's just take that, take that off the table um, because people are going to debate how much Trump is to blame for that. You had testimony from people saying, uh, his his data specialist. You had his campaign lawyer, people. Bill Barr, the attorney general, who Trump was pressuring. You got to do something. He's he's getting all. He's using all the instruments of government to try to get people to uh, change change the election results. And he's got people around him who are experts on this stuff, saying there's nothing there. It's mm -hmm. not. And, and he continues anyway. I think yeah. The the testimony of Bill Barr 
the video of him <laughs> saying, yes. yeah. it's like, Mr. President, this is BS. Yeah. And he did not say BS. Yes. He said he went straight out. Uh, was I mean, that was powerful in its own way. Yeah. I mean, just, I mean, you know, he was clearly like by then, you know, by that point, his his relationship with the president was was I mean, he was on the way out. But uh, it was really remarkable. I mean, if you look at him pressuring the secretary of state of Georgia, him, him calling up legislators in some of these swing states, him again, trying to use after Barr is gone, he's got the acting attorney general telling him, you got to, you know, you got to do this. You got to try to do investigate this stuff. He's talking about uh, confiscating voting machines. That all this stuff is that's a, that's enough. That January 6th is, is just almost and like, at two Ivanka. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, that's true. She uh, yeah, she was on. She took Bill Barr's. And well, it's it's fascinating. She and, and Jared Kushner. I mean, there was a story about Jared Kushner a couple of weeks ago. Basically, saying two weeks after election day, he's like, "Let's get out. We're, let's move to Florida. We're getting out of here. This is crazy." You know. You, to me, one of the most chilling moments was his apparent indifference to the uh-huh. to the threat on Mike Pence's life. Oh yeah. yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. Unbelievable. Yes. Yeah. What do you say? Is the will if it's the will of the people? Right. He deserves it. Wow. They said, I think they say it was there was a gasp in the uh, in the hearing room when yeah. when that, when Cheney read. This was quote. a small moment, but it really uh, struck me was was I remember watching the the insurrection in real time, and there was then the news outlets were saying, "Oh, there's a tweet from Donald Trump saying Mike Pence really let down the American public." And blah blah. I, I'm not going to remember the exact quote, but what I did not know was they showed footage of people, those insurrectionists. One of them reading. I don't know if he had like a megaphone. I don't remember what he had, but he's he's like reading out Trump's tweet, basically saying he's on our side. In this. Yeah. That I think that is really that's a great point. Pretty amazing. Um, before we wrap things up, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, our uh, City Hall reporter, Megan Stringer, has done some great work on the redistricting issue. And she wrote about uh, something which I guess has now been settled. It was settled over the weekend. Uh, the redistricting committee, you had a, you had a, an issue because uh, district, uh, district 1 contains the, the business district of San Antonio. And uh, District 5, which is the, the city's west side district, kind of always lags behind their other districts in terms of population. The, the average population should be, be 143,000 right now. And they're at about 119. Um, and they're always, they, their, their growth is always kind of slower than the, or than the rest of the city. So they needed to pick up that population to create balance. And um, there was thought about taking some of the, maybe the West edge of that uh, business district and putting that into district five and people were not happy about it. And you had the business community really, really. And, and so Greg, I wanted to ask you about, it seems like there are two possible issues here. One is they wanted a unified uh, council representation for them. And also maybe concerns about Terry Castillo, who's a very progressive freshman council member in district five. What, what do you make of it? Oh, yeah. So to me, the most remarkable thing was that, you know, we've had months of these hearings. Uh, these, you know, these maps have been in the works for quite a while. And as far as we can tell, the business community was really unaware of it until last That's week. That's amazing. Like the very, the very, <laughs> the 11th hour, they notice it, they freak out. They send Richard Perez, who is the CEO and president of the San Antonio Chamber of Commerce, to a hearing, uh, to one of the meetings to object. And that's really the first, you know, it, it, they became aware of it. So there was a lot of behind the scenes lobbying, a lot of calls to appointees, a lot of calls probably to council members from business people, because this would have taken like HEB headquarters, for example, their campus, mm. 
It's in District 1. It would have moved it to District 5. It would have taken... It would have taken the Frost Bank Tower, moved it from District 1 to District 5, and, you know, several other pretty major uh, business entities. So, um, yeah, they, they freaked out. And uh, at the end of the day, they got what they wanted. They, they remain within uh, District 1. Um, you know, their, their argument is that the Central Business District is one community, and it should deal with one council member rather than divide their, you know, their mm-hmm. interests between two council members. You, know, you never know what you're going to get. Yeah. And you could, you know, you could have, uh, you know, fewer resources as a result if those two council members don't get along or if, you know, something falls through the cracks. I think uh, a big driver here is the politics of Terry Castillo. I think she's the District 5 councilwoman. She's been... I think she, you know, she's one of the most outspoken council members. I mean, she's a freshman, but you can hardly tell it. <laughs> she's very assertive. Uh, maybe not comfortable on the dais yet, but she's she's got core beliefs and she's not afraid to talk about them. Those include living wages, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, health care. Concerns uh, about the down, the downside of economic development. Exactly. That, you know, yeah. And so, you know, I think there might have been concern among uh, business people. It's like, okay, if we have to go to Terry Costillo to, you know, say we're seeking an economic development grant, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that goes through the economic development department, but you always have to have basically the blessing of the council member for it to really proceed. So they do that. They go to Terry Costillo. And she says, hey, that's great. Yeah, I totally support you. By the way, let's talk. Not that this is related in any way. (laughs) Let's talk about your pay structure. Let's talk about your expansion plans on the west side. Let's talk about, you know, your health insurance, things like that. And those are conversations they really don't want to have with a council member. And I think that's that is in large part what drove Mm -hmm. this this freak out. I would just say before we wrap it up that – this is an issue that it's not really going to go away because I imagine in 10 years, right. uh, District 5 is going to need to pick up population again. Mm-hmm. And somebody's going to somebody's gonna have to move to, yeah. to a yeah. new council district. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know exactly how that's going to work. Yeah. But um, we thank everyone for listening in. We hope everyone's doing well. And we'll be back with you next week. Take care. Mm-hmm.